Well, please turn in your Bibles to, to John's Gospel, chapter 12. Uh, that's the portion that Gary has just read to us. Uh, John chapter 12, it's John's account uh, of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 12, verses 12 to 26 is the portion that we're going to be looking at together this morning uh, as we focus uh, on Palm Sunday, on our attention to the events that took place. Please keep your Bibles open because we're going to uh, be working our way through the passage and it's important that you see uh, God's word for yourself in the pages of Scripture. So we, we come to the events, the historical events of Palm Sunday today and we find that this is one of the few events uh, in the life of Jesus which all four Gospels recount. Uh, you know that the Gospels all take slightly different uh, angles to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so not all the Gospels contain everything in the same way. But this is one of those accounts where we have all four Gospels explaining the same event. And yet, despite it being such a well-known part of the Easter story, it might well be one of the most misunderstood stories in Scripture, or at least with regards to uh, the, the week's events that are taking place uh, around Easter. I'm sure if you've grown up in the church, uh, that from a young age you can remember many Sunday school stories of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. I'm sure, as a, if you're an adult, but even if you're a child here this morning, you've colored in many pictures of Crowds throwing their cloaks on the ground like a kind of a, a multicolored red carpet to welcome Jesus into the city of David. People waving their palm branches as the, the children did this morning. Uh, crowds shouting out, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the king of Israel. But what John reveals in this account is that there was actually much confusion on the road to Jerusalem. And I would suggest that many people today remain just as confused about Jesus and the significance of his entry into Jerusalem as the various people described in John chapter 12. And so we're going to consider the various groups uh, of people in John's account and see perhaps how their confusion and how their misunderstanding might enlighten us uh, and our understanding to who Jesus really is this Easter. And so in the first place, I want us to see the multitude of nationalists in verses 12 uh, to 13. That the first group that John describes is this large crowd of Jewish nationalists who had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the land of Israel, but also many Jews who would have traveled from across the entire Roman Empire to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This was the most significant religious and national gathering of the Jewish calendar. And many hundreds of thousands uh, flocked to Jerusalem for this one occasion every year. The historian Josephus, um, he records that on one such occasion a census was taken and there were 2.7 million people who flocked to Jerusalem. 
Now, many scholars doubt Josephus. They say that he does have a tendency to exaggerate numbers. Nevertheless, it is believed that on any given Passover around this time, there would have been around 500,000 people flocking to and surrounding Jerusalem. So these were committed Jews. These were nationalists to the core. And, and we know this by the reference in the text to the palm branches, which they took as they went out to meet Jesus and to wave as they welcomed him into Jerusalem. You see, by this time, the palm branch had become synonymous with the waving of the national flag of a country. They didn't have flags like we have today that you could purchase on any street corner. They had palm branches. Now, one commentator says, for the previous 200 years, the palm branch had become a symbol for Jewish nationalism. 150 years earlier, when Simon Maccabeus drove out the Syrians from Jerusalem and restored the temple, he was heralded by the people with waving palm branches. During the wars of Jewish rebellion that followed after the time of Jesus, coins were struck by the insurgents with an image of palm branches. The palm was the Jews' emblem for a conqueror, an association which they now made with the promised Messiah. So this large crowd of nationalists thought that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to be their political conqueror and that he would set them free from Roman oppression. And we see this with their cry, Hosanna. It, it shows us this. Hosanna is a Hebrew word which means save us now. It comes to us from Psalm 118, verse 25, which the Jews would have committed to memory and, and recited regularly. Save us. There's the word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we, give, we, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the crowds were shouting. Save us. The whole psalm from which this Hosanna phrase is taken is a psalm of God's deliverance of his people, Israel, from all the enemy nations around them. And so this had become a, a messianic psalm. It was a psalm looking forward one day to the Messiah who they thought would come and militarily deliver God's people once again. And so that's this first group of confused people the nationalists who were, were looking to Jesus to be their military and their political liberator, the one who would remove the heavy yoke of Rome uh, from them and bring them freedom and economic prosperity. Now the next group of confused people we see on the road are but a small handful of Jesus' disciples, and I'm calling them the band of idealists. And uh, we see them in verse 16. It says his disciples did not understand. His disciples were confused about these things. But when Jesus was glorified, so either pointing to his death and resurrection or ultimately to his ascension, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. But at the time of Palm Sunday, at the time of these events, his disciples were still confused. 
about what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so I'm calling them idealists because they had been with Jesus for three years. They had heard all of his teachings. They had seen all of his miracles. They had witnessed his perfect life of love and grace and mercy. They had seen Jesus command the wind and the waves which obeyed him. They had seen him cast out demons. And just a few days before, they had witnessed him raise Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, from the dead. These disciples, or at least 11 of the 12, knew that Jesus was the Son of God. We've seen this a number of times already in the Gospels. Uh, John 6, verse 68 Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Matthew tells us that the disciples had no doubt as to who Jesus was. Jesus said to to them in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. So these men were not confused in the same way that the the large crowd of nationalists were confused. These men knew who Jesus was. They knew the Old Testaments well. They knew that God had made a covenant with David, that one of his own offspring would, would reign on the throne of David forever. They knew Jesus to be the Messiah King but they did not fully understand that the kingdom of Jesus was not an earthly kingdom. They did not yet realize that his was a spiritual kingdom and that their great enemy was not the the Roman emperor, but Satan and sin and death. And they certainly did not understand that the road to Jesus' kingship was by way of the cross. And so they too were confused about this triumphal entry. Then the third group that John describes as being confused are the the crowd of sensationalists. And uh, we see them in verse 17 and 18 uh, of our passage. Now we need to, to realize here that there are two crowds in this account. There's the first really massive crowd which had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. They came out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus. That's the the crowd of nationalists. But then there's another crowd in these verses, a smaller crowd that was making their way to Jerusalem with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem. Let's read in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, the other crowd that came from Jerusalem, was because they had heard from this crowd what he had done, that he had done the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. So the smaller crowd that had been with Jesus and this other crowd that had come out to meet him were those who had either directly seen or heard about the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And I'm calling them the sensationalists because they loved a good show. They wanted to be where the action was. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead, well, man, that's been the best show that any of them had ever seen. They also knew that 
at the time, there was a warrant out for the arrest of Jesus. And so no matter what was going to happen when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, it would be sensational. There was going to be action. There was going to be entertainment. Now, this was nothing new in the ministry of Jesus. If you go back to John chapter 6, verse 2, we are told that there was a, a large crowd that followed Jesus because they saw the miracles that he was doing. Again, in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus rebukes the large crowd that followed him simply in order to fill their bellies with food. So wherever Jesus went, there were large groups of people who wanted to be entertained by the supernatural. But they were not interested in understanding who Jesus is. They were not followers of his teaching, and they did not understand that the miracles he was doing was pointing to a far greater reality of who he was. And then in the fourth place, John tells us of another group uh, the party of religionists in verse 19. Now, these are the Pharisees. Uh, these Pharisees, it seems, were mixed in among these crowds that were accompanying Jesus into Jerusalem, who in their growing frustration said in verse 19, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Now, I'm calling these guys the religionists because they were the leaders of the Jewish religion, who although they claimed to have a great honor and respect for God and outwardly obeyed all the rules and regulations of the Jewish religion, they were simply hypocrites, hypocrites who wanted to keep all the power and the influence for themselves. These guys had not made it a secret that they did not approve of Jesus. Back in chapter 11, verse 53, we are told that they plotted to kill Jesus. They had actually, in chapter 11, verse 57, put out a public notification in Jerusalem that if anyone saw Jesus, they should report him so that he could be arrested. So, so the Pharisees wanted posters for, for Jesus' arrest had actually now backfired on them because the whole of Jerusalem was expecting the arrival of Jesus. It only served to, to stir up the crowd of nationalists who were looking for Jesus to become their political liberator. It stirred up the crowds of sensationalists who simply wanted to be where the action was to the point now that everyone had gone out to meet Jesus and to bring him into Jerusalem, and they're exasperated. This is getting us nowhere. Now, in one sense, all of the groups mentioned so far, it is probably the Pharisees who are actually the least confused about Jesus. For we have it recorded multiple times in the gospel that they understood very clearly who Jesus was. They even asked him outright to, to tell them plainly, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? To which Jesus replied in John chapter 10, I have told you, but you do not believe. So as the crowds called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
Luke tells us in chapter 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is blasphemous. How can they call you the king of the Jews? How can they call you the son of David? And he answered and said, I tell you, if these crowds were silent, even the very stones would cry out. They understood better than most who Jesus claimed to be. They were just blinded by their religious hypocrisy not to believe who Jesus really was. And then the final group that John tells us about is maybe quite a surprise. And in the end, it turns out to be the most significant group in this whole account. And I'm calling them the first fruits of genuineness. I think I made that word up, um, but, but hopefully you, you'll get what I'm saying in a minute. V- verse 20 is probably the next day, although it may still be the same day. We are told in verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, all the people described so far in the account of the triumphal entry were Jews, the nationalists, the idealists, the sensationalists, the religionists, they were all Jews. And they were all confused about who Jesus really was and what he had come to do. But now John tells us that in Jerusalem were some Greeks. These are Gentiles whom the Jews despised. These are Gentiles from other nations who were excluded from the people of God. They were excluded from the worship of God. And it's these Gentile Greeks who come to Philip and they say, We want to see Jesus. Now, they had no doubt seen Jesus with their eyes in the same way that all the crowds had seen Jesus as as he moved along into Jerusalem. But after the hype had settled, these Gentiles asked for a personal encounter with Jesus. We want to meet Jesus is what they are really saying. Philip seems baffled by their request. He, he goes and explains it to Andrew. And maybe they thought together they should go and try and speak to Jesus and maybe just dismiss this request. But they go and they tell Jesus that there are these Greeks, these Gentiles, who want to speak to Jesus. And Jesus gives the most astounding response to their request. He says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, that phrase should ring a bell because multiple times in John's gospel, John has told us at various points in the life and ministry of Jesus that his hour had not yet come. So there was throughout the gospel of John an anticipation that there is an hour which is coming. No one really knows what that means, but it's not yet. But now, as soon as some Gentiles inquire to meet with Jesus, Jesus says, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. There was something far more significant going on here than simply a few foreigners wanting an autograph. No, for Jesus, in the face of all the misunderstanding of the Jews around him, their rejection of him, it was this request of the Gentiles to meet with him that triggered the statement, the hour of his glorification has come. We know that that's a reference to all that would take place in his death and his resurrection in the next few days. Of all the people in this account, this request of these Greeks signaled that the fullness of the kingdom of God was about to burst forth onto the stage of history. These Gentile seekers were the first fruits of the church the first fruits of what would take place once Jesus' death had accomplished salvation for all the nations. The first fruits of those who would seek after Jesus in order to put their faith in him. Now, how do we know that I'm not making too much of this inquiry of the Gentiles? How do we know um, that, that we're not reading perhaps too much into Jesus' response? Well, because this whole account, this whole account is not really about these confused groups of people. The whole account is really about the one Savior. Now, we are not told anything about Jesus in this whole account except for one thing. Please go back to verse 14. Now, this is in the midst of all the nationalists who were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, we are only told one thing about Jesus, verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Why on earth would he do that? Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now this is a quotation which comes from the prophet Zechariah. You can maybe start finding your way to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I'm going to bring it up on the screen, uh, but you can mark it as a cross-reference cross in your Bible. We must remember that at this time, people didn't have personal copies of the Bible. They didn't have cell phones, which they could quickly copy and paste a verse from a different portion and WhatsApp it uh, so that they got, <coughs> excuse me, got it correctly. Now, when a New Testament writer refers to an Old Testament passage, he's referring to the whole section from which it comes, and he's just quoting a brief summary from which it is extracted. And so let's get the full weight of this reference to Zechariah 9, verse 9. It's got nothing to do with the mode of transport for Jesus into Jerusalem. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, we have these verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so the act of Jesus 
in climbing onto a donkey is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah by, or in a way which the nationalists clearly did not understand. For them, Jesus should have ridden into Jerusalem on a war horse. His job, according to them, was to bring liberation through military victory. And yet by linking the actions of Jesus to the prophecy of Zechariah, John tells us that Jesus is not that kind of king. His riding on a donkey was a symbol of humility. And his kingdom was not a kingdom of war, but a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of peace. And this wasn't the only thing Jesus did to make this point clear. We have a, another glimpse in, in Luke's gospel that the nationalists, while they were waving their, their palm branches to herald in their military conqueror, Luke tells us, when Jesus drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wasn't coming to make war. He was coming to bring peace, but they had no clue that this is what they really needed. They had no understanding whatsoever the means by which true peace, peace with God himself, would be accomplished. Jesus was not loving their attention. Jesus was not glorying in their misguided fanfare. Jesus was weeping over their blindness and their lostness. And the Jews should have known better because Zechariah's prophecy told them as much that when their king comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, his salvation will not be a military salvation. Look again at verse 10 of Zechariah 9. God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, that is the king who rides into Jerusalem, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The promised Messiah king would be a king who brought peace. A king who will cut off the war horse and the bow, whose salvation is to speak peace to the nations, whose rule will extend across the entire globe. Jesus didn't come to liberate the Jews from the Romans. And can I remind you that he is not coming again to liberate Israel from the Russians. He came to liberate the whole world from the power of Satan and to bring true peace with God to all the peoples from every language and tribe across the earth. I just love the irony of the words of the Pharisees in verse 19. This is getting us nowhere, they said. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now we know what they meant. They meant everyone's gone out after him, but they said the whole world. This is exactly what Zechariah said would happen. 
And so I, I hope now you can see the significance of verse 20. When John tells us that in the midst of all the confused Jews, there were some Greeks, some Gentiles from the nations of the world, and they came to seek out Jesus. Then the, the full weight of Zechariah's prophecy is understood when Jesus said, it's time. It's time to bring peace to the nations. The hour has come for me to be glorified from sea to sea, even to the ends of the earth. Do you remember John's summary? John's summary of the life of Jesus from John chapter 1. It's playing out right before our eyes as, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. John 1 verse 9, John says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural, that is not of Jewish descent, nor of a human's decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. And so as we close today, I want us to see how the only Savior, Jesus Christ, he is not interested in nationalists who think that being a Christian is about God giving you political freedom and economic prosperity. He wasn't interested in them then, and he's not interested in them today. He's not interested in idealists who are trying to shape Jesus, no matter how good our intentions, into the king of our own imaginations. He's not interested in sensationalists who hang around the church to be entertained by spiritual things. He's certainly not impressed by religionists who belong to an institution but whose hearts are far from him. No, he weeps. He weeps over those who are blind and lost. And ultimately, he desires for each of us here today to come to terms with who he really is. Jesus is after the genuineness those who genuinely seek after him as the righteous king who brings peace with God, who seek after him as their humble king, who forgives their sins, as we've just remembered around the Lord's table, the only king who brings salvation. And so Jesus takes this request of the Greeks to seek him out, and he turns it around on his disciples, and he turns it around on us today. Just look at chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The hour of Jesus' glorification was about to come by way of his death. It's only through his death, he says, 
that his life will bear much fruit. It's only by his death that many will be given eternal life. And so Jesus is calling his hearers then and now to respond. The way of eternal life is found only in us dying to self, dying to the love of this world, and then placing our trust in him as our righteous Savior and King. If you are here today and you love your life too much to let it go, Jesus says in the end you will lose it. You will lose it. You will die and you will leave all that you love behind and you will be lost eternally. But if you recognize that Jesus is your only hope of salvation and you let go of your love of self and you let go of your love of this world and you cling to him, to Jesus' heart and soul and mind and strength, you will be saved and inherit eternal life. The weight of eternity rests on what you do with Jesus today. And so I want to close with the words which Jesus just went on to speak next. Just read on with me in chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Of course not. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Are we going to consider the, the details of Jesus' death in this coming week? We're going to ponder on all that Jesus has done to purchase our peace with God and our eternal life. Can I appeal to you, if you are still confused about who Jesus is today, please don't wait till next weekend. Won't you cry out to Jesus today? to forgive you from your sins and to become your savior and your king. If you're not sure really what that means or how to do that, like to speak to someone about that, please just come to the front after the service. I'll be here. If there any other pastors or elders, uh, just keep an eye out for anyone who would want to speak to you regarding that, and we would be happy to talk more with you. But may you not be someone over whom Jesus wept as you leave here today blinded and confused about who he really is. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we, we do want to thank you again for your great plan of salvation. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. 
Lord, as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ again today, may the words of that song be the echo and the theme song of our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.